Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where LSU's victory over Texas A&M on Saturday Saturday, in Death Valley closed out the 2019 season at 12 and and the O. And Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where Big Frank, one of the most famous pig smokers in history, was stolen from its owner's home in Little Rock late Sunday or early Monday morning and located by Pulaski County authorities with the help from the public. Thank you for joining us for Episode 40, State of California versus Stanley Williams. In February and March 1979, Williams killed four people in two separate armed robberies in the Los Angeles area. Williams, a Louisiana native, grew up in South Central Los Angeles, and was purportedly one of the founders of the Crips gang. Although he denied involvement in the murders, he was convicted at trial and sentenced to death by a jury in 1981. We'll talk about the case against Williams, his direct appeal and post-conviction claims, his writing career while in prison, and the controversy surrounding his execution on December 13, 2005. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. Great to be back, even though, you know, we had all that garbage last night that happened. I'm glad we finally found a loophole and we're back live here on on Clear and Convincing. Yep. Special episode on a Wednesday night. Right, right. We've been trying, uh, full disclosure, we've been trying to get this Tukey Williams episode going for, what, about a month now? Yeah, we tried on the 12th and had a technical issue. Right. And then we postponed it because we had the Rodney Reed episodes scheduled. And we took off for Thanksgiving. How was your Thanksgiving, by the way? It was pretty good. How about yours? It was great. I went to my sister's. I saw my mm-hmm. great nephew. He is eight months old. He is the most adorable, precious baby in the world. Mm-hmm. And he's a very happy baby. Well, that's good. So That's good. And had a lot of fun with my sister, brother-in-law, 
members of her family, you know, her extended family down in Thibodeau. It was great. We laughed a lot. Awesome. Um, so, and we all got along. Right. That's always good because that doesn't always happen on the holidays. No, especially at holidays. Right. Right. So, certainly true. And but, uh, but yeah, did you you heard about Big Frank? Yes, I did hear about Big Frank. Now they have found him. Uh, yes, they found him. They found him. Uh, I don't know who would still steal a, a unique smoker like that because uh pretty sure it's going to be easily identified, but definitely uh, people these days, like, well, I don't understand. Mm. The, the news stories that I read, um, it was stashed behind a mobile home somewhere yep. out in Pulaski, in Pulaski County. I think mm-hmm. somebody thought they were going to have some scrap metal because it was uh, – it's a 20-foot-long, 14-foot-high smoker. Right, right. That's a lot of scrap metal. I never thought about that. That's a good point. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I'm glad they recovered it because uh, the the current owners, Buddy Rhodes and his wife Dina, uh, they've been bringing Big Frank to charity events, uh, raising money for organizations like Hogs, Hogs for the Cause, Boys and Girls Clubs, and Junior League of Little Rock. So, I'm glad they have it back. It was out of its enclosure for repairs. Hopefully, from now on, it will remain safely tucked away in its enclosure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I noticed you brought up the fact that uh, LSU's undefeated. Uh, While LSU was in the process of going undefeated this year and finishing out the regular season, we're closing in on uh, possibly hiring a new coach. We're hoping – me and uh, Brad are hoping to hear something this weekend is what we're hoping. But we're hoping it's going to be a good Bring us back to some uh, competitive players. Well, as I understand it, I mean, Alabama lost to LSU and then Auburn. So maybe Nick Saban's going to be looking for a job. Uh, If Alabama fans had their way right now, they pretty much, he pretty much would, which is, you know, as an Arkansas fan, I'm just, my mind is blown by that. The man brought you, what, at this point? Seven something like seven national championships, and you're complaining about a two loss season. Uh huh. Actually, well, that's Alabama doesn't. Uh, Alabama, and, and well, I met some very nice, very sweet Alabama fans when I visited Mike Six at mm-hmm. LSU just for, just before he passed away. Uh, but a lot of Alabama fans, they they aren't good winners, and they're even worse losers. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, not all. I've met some wonderful Alabama fans, but I've also met a lot that are they're not good. You know, they're they're not good in victory, and they're not they're even worse in defeat. Oh yes. Because it rarely happens, and they're not used to being defeated. But it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Everything is everything so. changes. But we got and hey, you know, months. y'all maybe y'all maybe y'all can get in touch with Les Miles. Uh, 
Maybe a little crazy is what y'all need. Hey, maybe. Maybe. So, all right. Well, let's get... Let's get into our updates. We have some updates on several cases that we've talked about. Um, Things have started popping a little bit. In the Sedley Alley case, the posthumous request for DNA testing was dismissed by the trial court. Uh, Long and short of it is that under the statutes for post-conviction testing in Tennessee, April Alley, Sedley Alley's daughter, lacked standing to seek DNA testing on behalf of her father. Um, I think also another issue, another basis was the fact that Alley's been executed. So So testing would really not serve a purpose. I can understand that. I can kind of understand that. And, of course, Barry Sheck uh has uh they're gonna appeal to the it's probably gonna be the the intermediate court of appeals and then perhaps the Tennessee Supreme Court. Um that that issue the decision was issued like November eighteenth. So I think they have thirty days to file their notice of appeal. Okay. Okay, so, I mean, so. I can kind of understand both ways on that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the only thing, the, the funny thing is, is that a lot of times they'll file these appeals, and then when it doesn't seem to be going their way, they will drop the case because they don't want an adverse opinion out there. Right. So, um, I, you know, I don't know if they'll pursue the appeal because they got to be careful because you don't want to have the Tennessee state court saying, yeah, an estate cannot petition for post-conviction DNA testing after an offender has died or been executed. You don't want that kind of decision on the book. Uh, right, absolutely. <clears throat> so… And then uh, in Dahlia DiPolito, her attorneys have filed a writ at the United States Supreme Court that was filed on Monday uh, – on Tuesday the 3rd. Um, they are – I think the only issue that they're raising is as to the objective entrapment defense that they wanted to put before the jury that the judge told them was improper – to put it before the jury because objective entrapment is determined pre-trial and it's an issue for the judge. Subjective entrapment is an affirmative defense, but subjective entrapment, you have to admit that you committed the crime. Right. Right. And so, uh, so DiPolito didn't want to do that. Yes. Um, now, I like I said, the writ, the the computer docket is not up yet. But once the writ is online and available for download, 
I will, of course, download it and read what their issues are. But the articles that I read today only talked about putting the objective entrapment defense before the jury. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, of course, you know, the, the facts, they keep they keep putting the facts or alleging the facts that they want to allege to make it look like the Boynton, Pol- Boynton Beach police manufactured the crime, but they don't mention the fact that the only reason the Boynton Beach police knew about the crime is because Mohammed Shahade co- contacted them when Dahlia DiPolito wanted somebody to kill her husband and had some gang members who were saying that they'd do it for her. And that's when he thought, well, this is getting too serious. Let me let me get the cops involved. Gotta love <clears throat> conveniently left out details. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then Christopher Dunch, uh, the, you know, mad doctor who uh, whose medical negligence went beyond error and into gross negligence and caused injury and, and death to two patients and injury to several others. His uh, conviction and sentence are now final. The mandate has issued at the Court of Appeal. His petition for a discretionary writ by the Court of Criminal Appeals was denied, and um, no writ was filed at the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. Okay. Uh, There's also attorneys at uh, Baker Donaldson, I believe, Mm -hmm. have filed a request for the record. So I believe that uh, they are preparing to file a post-conviction claim Hmm. or claims on behalf of Dutch. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Leon Jacob, another mad doctor who uh, wanted to kill not only his ex-girlfriend, but the ex-husband of his current girlfriend. And she went along with that plan and financed it because he didn't have two nickels to rub together. Uh, his He filed a motion for a hearing at the Court of Appeal, and that has been denied on December 21st. The next move is likely a petition for discretionary review by the Court of Criminal Appeals based on his claim that the indictment – that the state failed to prove that the initials of the complainants in the indictment were not proven at trial. Mm-hmm. So um, – Then on Rodney Reed, the U.S. Supreme Court will conference on his writ. Uh, It was supposed to be conference on the 21st or the 15th of November. It was relisted for the 21st, and then they relisted it again for December 6th, 2019, which is this Friday. Uh, Mm -hmm. They have also filed a motion to reconsider or a suggestion to reconsider at the Court of Criminal Appeals 
challenging the appointment of retired Judge J.D. Langley to um, handle the remand of Reed's case back to the trial court to evaluate his new evidence and new witness claims. Okay. Okay. And uh, then Hank Skinner, we haven't heard about him in a while. His case was submitted in March of this year. Uh, this is an appeal on denial of a new trial after DNA testing results. And um, the a supplemental memorandum regarding the interpretation a case a federal case out of Michigan. Excuse me, regarding interpretation of mixed DNA profiles has been filed at the Court of Criminal Appeals on November 5th. Uh, the fact that it was submitted in March, we're at November, it hasn't been decided, and that Skinner was allowed to file a basically file a supplemental memorandum with a case that is not controlling or precedent in the Texas courts shows that the the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals did not just rubber stamp decisions. They they do carefully consider them. Of course, they do have some new judges, so they're probably working to get up to speed on a lot of cases as well. And then finally, Adnan Syed, his request for uh, – or his writ of certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court was denied on Monday, November 25th, 2019. So the Supreme Court will not uh, review the Maryland State Court's reinstatement of his conviction and sentence. Really? Correct. Huh. So, um, and I don't, I don't know whether, if he had a prior state post-conviction claim, and he did not file a federal writ within a year of that claim being resolved, or if he didn't have a prior state post-conviction claim, he didn't file a writ in a, within a year of his direct appeal, he may not be able to file a federal writ. Because his conviction falls well after EDPA, which sets time limitation on filing federal writs. So we'll have to see. You typing? Huh. Yeah, I'm typing some stuff. I've got like 20 different things going on. I apologize. Yeah, I mean <laughs> – it's certainly, it's certainly something to be said as far as that goes. I, I mean, the, the guy, the guy's gotten a ton. From what I remember of us going after, going over his case, he's gotten a ton of chances. Just like everybody else on this list of updates we got. Mhm. I mean, 
Lord. Every week we do these updates, the thing that really stands out to me is that, quote-unquote, the justice system is just so wrong and so biased. It, it, it still makes me laugh. Right, because, I mean, they, they do have these opportunities that, um, with the with the exception of Dunch, it wasn't really a murder case. And Jacob and DiPolito, nobody actually died. But, I mean, yeah, they still have plenty of opportunities. The rest of these cases, these you know, these people had opportunities, except Allie, who's already been executed, uh, have had opportunities that their victims did not get. Right. And you know we'll continue. You mentioned you mentioned uh, Dutch. Uh, you mentioned him. I mean, there very well could have, in my opinion, been a murder case in that situation. Because let's be honest, he definitely contributed more than a little bit to the death of a few patients. Well, the the problem is is that and in Texas, I think most murder. Uh, most of the statutes dealing with murder, first degree, second degree, uh, there has to be an an intent to kill or harm the victim. And they couldn't really reach that threshold that he intended. What they were able to prove is that he had had so many bad outcomes and yet he did not stop and say hey maybe it's me not the patients and they also had doctors who had who had repaired and and um revised surgeries that Dunch had performed who said it looked like this was surgery was performing somebody who didn't know what he was doing or didn't give a damn Right. So, I mean, um, one has to wonder, though, like, you know, just the lack of caring. One has to, you know, take into consideration, I think, maybe that is, you know, that makes them culpable. I don't know. I, it's kind of slippery slope, I guess. But. Right. And it would be, and I think that they, uh, at the most, they would have maybe been able to get manslaughter. Uh-huh. Because there was no specific intent. It was just the result of his reckless conduct, i.e. performing surgery in a careless and barbaric manner. Right. That makes so, sense. But, um Yeah. So, uh, but he, I mean, he's still serving life in prison. True, true. I mean, it's not like he would have gotten the death penalty. It probably would have been life either way. But my point was, you know, you could make an argument that, especially in Dunch's case, he might as well have been charged with murder, I guess, trying to say. Right. Well, again, and again, he's proof. That Texas DAs do not overcharge. True. You know, because uh, in the death penalty cases, there's always an allegation that they that capital murder was overcharging. 
It wasn't capital murder. It was first-degree murder. It was second-degree murder. It was manslaughter. Um, so, you know, and like I said, it's, it, it also shows cases are not cookie-cutter. It's not one-size-fits-all. You have to look at the case-by-case basis as to what the facts are, what the conduct was, and what the what the criminal conduct was. Right, right. So, all right. So uh, let's get on with Tukey. I do want to make a quick preliminary statement based on some of the uh, allegations and accusations and insults that were thrown uh, at me on Twitter the weekend prior to our initial – no, this was the weekend prior to our initial Tukey show uh, dealing with the Rodney Reed case. Oh, okay. Uh, So my preliminary statement, and people can believe me or not believe me, I don't really care. I was – Raised in New Orleans, my mother raised me not to judge people by how they looked, to judge them by their deeds and their character, their actions. So I don't care that Tukey was black. I don't care that one of his victims was white and his other three were Asian. My belief in his guilt has nothing to do with the color of his skin or his victims. And the same goes to Rodney Reed. I've never said anything about Rodney Reed's race. I've never made comparisons or uh, analogies based on his race, based on his personality, which, again, I think some of these individuals that we've talked about, these different criminals, no matter what their race or religion, they have a personality flaw that makes them who and what they are. So I just wanted to I, I just wanted to go on and you know make that statement because I've been called a racist. I've been told I'm I'm a member of the KKK, which couldn't be further from the truth. Oh Lord Jesus! In fact, I had neighbors get mad at me once when my ex-husband and I lived in an apartment. We lived next door to a young couple, and we were watching something. And it had like a white supremacist on it. It was a TV show or a documentary, and I said something about the white supremacist, mm-hmm. calling him an inbred MS, uh, because yes. what he was saying really incensed me. And um, they no longer spoke to us. Wow. That's, and that's I, you know, for a while I couldn't figure out what was going on, and then. My husband said, well, what's going on? Because they had no problem with him because he didn't say anything. Uh, Even though he felt the same way, he just didn't like conflict. 
and he, I said, what happened? He said, he was not happy when you said this about, you know, this person in the documentary we were watching. Like, well, I'm sorry. He made me mad. I think it was, um, it was, it was in the early nineties. And I think it was when the, um, the, they were holding the trial for the immigrant that the white nationalist morons beat to death. Mm-hmm. And they were trying the two heads of one of the Aryan groups saying that they had incited the the violence against immigrants. Right. And that was what, you know, they were interviewing the young son who was, you know, a nice looking young man, but the, you know, his character was so ugly, it was, you know, not even funny. And that was my reaction. So calling me a member of the KKK or a racist is like the furthest thing from the truth. Right. So, I just wanted to say that because the the Tukey Williams conviction, a lot of controversy uh, because of his race, raised about his race, raised about the uh, composition of his jury, which he claimed was all white, but records showed uh, there was an African American and a Hispanic jury member. Um. I don't know how I don't know how Los Angeles County picked juries or or got jury veneers. But I was looking at it in Rodney Reed's case and you have to either be registered to vote or have a valid driver's license. Mm-hmm. And in in the in the personal injury in New Orleans, one of the most common tickets is either a suspended license or an expired license or never had a license in their life. Right. So, you know, um, but like I don't, you know, I don't think Rodney Reed had a license. So he would have never been called for jury duty. Unless he was registered to vote. He may have been registered to vote. I don't know. But, um, yeah, so that's, you know, that can, sometimes you end up with a jury veneer that does not have a lot of African-Americans, Hispanics to begin with because the traditional methods of picking, of pulling juries in from your county uh, involve methods that sometimes minorities are not represented as as heavily in the population. Right. So, um, and then it, there are other factors that go into it as well, but, uh, you know, age and whether you have, if you have children and you don't have child care, Young children, you don't have child care. 
if you're a caregiver for a relative or a child, um, those are all ways that people can be excused. And again, part of your jury veneer in the minorities, that may be a way that they are excused because they can't be in jury duty. If you have a job that will not allow you to take off for jury duty. And again, a lot of minorities work in jobs where you have to be there or you don't get paid. And so they can't they can't afford to be off on jury duty. Especially not for a trial that's going to last two weeks or three weeks or four weeks. If it's a couple of days, they might be okay. But any longer than right. that, they can't be off. So that's why I wanted to I wanted to make that preliminary statement because I don't you know I don't judge Stanley Williams because he was African American. I don't you know judge him because Albert Owens was Caucasian or the Yangs and Miss Lynn were Asian. Right. So. All right, so let's talk about Stanley Tukey Williams. Um, there's a, a lot of mythology around Williams's life. And so I'm basically sticking to what I could confirm in court opinions or multiple sources. Uh, there's a claim in his autobiography that he was born at Charity Hospital in New Orleans. However, Find a Grave lists his place of birth as Shreveport Caddo Parish, as does Wikipedia. Um, so I'm going to say he was born in Shreveport Caddo Parish. Now, he still may have been born at a state hospital. He was born in 1953. Um, he was named after his father, but his father left the family not long after he was born. Uh, after a time in Shreveport, his mother moved the family to South Central Los Angeles, where he grew up. Um, he was not successful in school. He apparently had problems in school, started using drugs, started getting involved in crimes. He had pretty extensive juvenile record. Um, in 1971, he and a guy by the name of Raymond Washington founded a Black Panther-style group in South Central. Um, there's, dis there's kind of dispute as to whether that was the Crips or whether it's just a set that eventually became part of the Crips. you know, larger gang. Um, because there was a lot of, even back in the 40s, there was a lot of uh, neighborhoods would have their territory and groups of young men would fight over their territory. And at first it was fighting with fists and then occasionally weapons. And then it continued to evolve to knives and finally guns. And I think the early 70s is when the guns were starting to come in. 
1974, he purchased, legally purchased, a shotgun using his own driver's license as proof. And um, that was the shotgun that was later linked to the robbery murder that occurred on February 27, 1979, and the uh, March 11, 1979 murders at the Brookhaven Motel, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And, of course, everybody's heard about his prison writing career. He wrote some books for children. Uh, He claimed to have uh, uh, disavowed his gang lifestyle and to have regretted his gang lifestyle. Uh, He also wrote an autobiography and uh, I guess a couple of autobiographical types of books, social issues types of books. Um, He was nominated for a Nobel Prize five times Peace Prize for his anti-gang work Mm -hmm. and then four times for his, his literary work. Um, okay. Over the course of, he never won. Uh, and I'm looking at, I pulled up statistics from Los Angeles County um, that show that in, he went to prison, to, Williams went to prison in 1981. He claimed that his uh, epiphany came in 1997 and his anti gang stance formed in 1997 and that's when he began working toward you know ending stamping out gangs uh forever and ever well in los angeles counties in spite of tukey williams peace efforts um between 97 and 98 there was a uptick in gang-related homicides in los angeles county uh in 99 There was a a slight down, and then in 2000 to 2001, the number of homicides, gang-related homicides, went up to 44.8% and 54.9%. Oh, there are no statistics since 2001 on this particular website, but it doesn't appear during this time that he was really having any impact. Now, granted, um, in there were high homicide rates in Los Angeles County overall. Okay, um, two thousand one was one thousand seventy homicides in Los Angeles County, but five hundred eighty seven of those were gang-related. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I can remember a, a co-worker who went to Los Angeles and actually had a concierge at her hotel, and she wasn't staying in South Central. I mean, she was staying, like, in a downtown hotel. But yeah. uh, she was walking out. She had a red kerchief on her neck, and the concierge at the hotel called her over and said, don't wear that. And don't wear a blue. Huh. Because if somebody sees that and they're, you know, if, if a crip sees red, 
they're going to shoot. And we look at Biggie Smalls, um, you know, Biggie and, and Tupac. Right, absolutely. That was allegedly Crips and Bloods. Right. Which was going around the same time, correct? I think Biggie and Tupac were like 95, mm-hmm. uh, 94, 95, 96, somewhere in there, 93. I can't remember the exact dates. Right. But yeah, that was – and like Tupac was Las, was Las Vegas. I think Tupac was 97 and Biggie was – no, Tupac 90, was 96 and Biggie was 97. Okay, yeah. So Biggie was 4-5 – one of the 452 gang-related. Yes, I'm sure. And um, in 1997. So, uh, you know, again, I I think another another problem, which we'll talk about a little bit later, um, but in one of the things Tukey wouldn't do was talk to prison officials about the structure leadership of the Crips gang because mm-hmm. he didn't want to be a snitch right right so that kind of um, now I'm also looking I found another another gang related crime in general um, in Los Angeles County in 2000 Four, or looks like 2004, prior to the year before Tukey was was executed, 2006-16 aggravated assaults. Right. 2005, 2006-39. 2006-39. 3,635. Now, Lisa, I may be jumping ahead here, but I do have to ask, what was, was there riots? I, I was 14 at the time. I remember watching the coverage, but was there riots when uh, Tukey was executed? No. Um, as I recall, there was concerns that there might mm-hmm. be but it did not happen. I think a lot of uh, Jesse Jackson and um, Helen Prejean, and I, I think a lot of the advocates counseled people to not descend to violence because it would not, it would look really bad. <laughs> I think from a public relations standpoint, if, you know, his his execution brought riots at the level of the, the Los Angeles riots yeah, in 1994. Yeah. So, uh, no, that did not happen. Okay. okay. And I applaud them for counseling – Hundred percent applaud them for counseling um, against that violence. Violence, yes. So um, anyway, so let's get to the case 
against Williams, the first uh, crime he and the thing that kind of mystifies me is he actually had no adult criminal record. Right. Now, I don't know whether that was just because he was smart and didn't get caught or that he just did, he he was committing crimes but not violent. But one of the problems is that with his drug use, he was uh, smoking PCP. Okay. Cigarettes laced with PCP. And I don't know if you know, but PCP is like the worst drug you can put in your body. Mm -hmm. Because it makes you freaking crazy. Okay. In all sorts of ways. Um, I I don't know from experience because I'd never touch the shit. Right. Uh, and you hear you know you hear about people on PCP, you know taking on five cops, and getting the crap kicked out of them, but continuing to fight. Yeah, I mean because you don't feel pain. Psychosis. Yeah. 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 Um, so. That particular night, uh, February 27, 1979, Tukey met up with three friends, one called Daryl, another named Alfred Coward, and a third named Tony Sims. They mm-hmm. drove around. Um, they attempted to rob a liquor store, a convenience store, and I think a gas station. But um, Tony or Daryl or Alfred, they're the ones that were tasked with rob- the, doing the robbery while Tukey waited, waited in the car, and they just didn't have the nerve to do it. So they weren't successful. So they get to this 7-Eleven, and Albert Owens is working the night shift alone. He's in the parking lot sweeping up. They pull into the parking lot or or pull up in two cars. Mm -hmm. Uh, Daryl and Tony go in, and they go behind the counter, and they're in the cash register. Albert walks in because he's put his broom and and, and, uh, dustpan down. He walks in, and Williams is behind him with a shotgun. And tells him to keep walking, takes him to a back room, puts him down on the floor, shoots out a video monitor, and then shoots Albert Owens twice in the back. Um, Albert was 26. He was recently divorced. He was trying to save up money to get custody back of his two daughters who live with their mother, I believe, in... The Midwest. He was in Los Angeles alone. All of his family lived, I believe, in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was shot at close range. And later that night, Tukey is telling someone 
about how he shot the guy in the back and then starts imitating the noises that Albert Owens made as he died. As if that isn't bad enough, Tukey then starts laughing hysterically. Yeah, that's pretty shitty. So, um, and I don't know how much of that was the BCP or personality. I, I don't know. But um, the the take from that robbery was about $120. Yeah, I remember it not being much. Yeah. So, is, you know, but as I told you, it doesn't matter. They could have gotten $1,000. They could have gotten $12. It doesn't matter. You took money. You killed somebody. That's, you know, that's, that's the crime. I it's not agree. less of a crime because you don't get, you get $12. Well, you and right. I had a little, a little chat because you thought it wasn't fair that somebody who stole $50 was going to prison for life. Well, I mean, there's a big difference between <laughs> stealing $12 and committing murder is my point. Well, yeah, but theft is theft. It doesn't – if you're not smart enough to hit the high-value place in a robbery, that's on you, not the law. True. You know, I mean it's still theft. So – um, about two weeks later, on March 11th, 1979, uh, Robert Yang was in his apartment behind the Brookhaven Motel with his wife and children. He heard a boom. He heard a woman scream and then gunshots. When he came out of the apartment's into the motel office, he found his father, Yen E. Yang, who was 76, his mother, Tsai Shai Yang, who was 63, and his 43-year-old sister, Yi Chen Lin, had been shot in a robbery. That robbery netted about $100. Uh, Yen E. And Yi Chen were both clinging to life. They were taken to local hospitals, and they died later that morning. They had been shot at close range with a shotgun. Wadding and I believe cartridges found at the scene were later matched or found to be consistent with – won't use the word match – consistent with being fired from the shotgun purchased by Stanley Williams in 1974. Okay. Um, Yi Chen Lin was visiting the family from Taiwan. She had a husband and children in Taiwan. 
So she came to visit her family and never went home. Yen E, Sai Che, and Robert were actually planning to sell the motel because the neighborhood had gotten a little bit too rough for them. And unfortunately, the Yang family, apparently, um, they felt that Robert should have done something more. And so he had a little problem or or had some um, criticism from his family. Although had he gone, when he heard the boom, if he had gone into the office, Williams would have shot him and killed him too. And then gone through the door and killed the wife and kids. Right, absolutely. So... I, I don't think that's fair because I think – and I think he heard the boom. He heard the scream. He heard the gunshots. It was all happening way faster than he could process. And, you know, that, that I'm glad he didn't move sooner because, like I said, Williams would have gone into the private apartments and killed everybody he found. I have absolutely no doubt about that because when a when one of the co-accomplices uh, in the 7-Eleven robbery asked, why would you kill him? He said he didn't want to leave any witnesses. He also allegedly said because he is white, but you know, that could have just been to make you – know, to impress the, the, co- the accomplice. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that, that would have – I have no doubt he would have killed everybody in that place to eliminate witnesses. Um, sometime later, I can't – I can never find an exact date of his arrest. He was arrested driving around with a, another young man, and uh, During his interview with police, toward the end of the interview, he asked the officers about how many shots were fired at the hotel. And then he says, was about five? And the detectives kind of, what? He said, how many shots were fired at the hotel? Five? And the detectives were like, now how would you know that? And what did I know? You know, then he starts playing. He realizes what he's done, and he starts playing. I didn't say that. I never said five. So, but it is. It's an. It's an inculpatory admission, because only the only the person who fired those five shots would know that five shots were fired. Yenny was shot twice. Sai Shea was shot, shot twice, and Yi Chen was shot twice. I mean, shot once. I was about to say the math didn't add up on that, Lisa. Yeah, I, 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 Yi Chen was only shot once. Um, and then I, I had thought of something. Oh, I, another thing that I thought of while I was talking about that. It's really very, very sad. These murders happened in 1979. There are tons of pictures on the internet of Stanley Tukey Williams. 
There are even some pictures of him as a child. There are pictures of him showing off his bodybuilding, either before or after his incarceration. I'm not sure what the you know time periods are. There are pictures hey, Charles, of him with glasses on. Huh? I said, trust me, he wasn't a small dude. No, he wasn't. Well, he wasn't very tall. I think he was only about 5'10". But he was bulked up. And apparently he thought the PCP helped that. I, I don't... I was listening to something else yesterday, and and when when the two, you know... Host said that I was like, "What?" <laughs> but maybe PCP or PCP is kind of like steroids. I don't know. Um, but anyway, you know, you find all these pictures of him, but then I can find one picture of Albert Owens in his army uniform because he was a veteran. But I cannot find a single picture of Mr. and Mrs. Yang their daughter, or even their son who survived. The only pictures of the Yangs and, and Yichen Lin are from their autopsies. Those are the only ones that show up on an internet search. It's really sad. I mean, I definitely agree. It is rather sad that, you know, the the uh, culprit in this case is remembered more so than the victims. I will definitely yeah. say that. And, you, uh, you know, I, I've had that with – I've had that with a few other cases where there aren't a lot of pictures of the victim. Um, but it, it's just in this one, it's like the only one for the Yangs are ones that I would never in a million years even think of putting up. Right. You know, so, but that is, um, and I'm kind of disappointed with the Los Angeles County District Attorney, who, when he was opposing clemency, could not find or get his hands on life, in-life pictures. And put those into his his opposition. Well, I mean, let's be honest here, Lisa. You know as well as I do that some of these lawyers don't like to use their life pictures. They like to use the results of the crime as it's more of a shock factor. Right, and that's that is true. But uh, you know, I would still. I would still find it – I would have found it very effective, and I know in uh, Kevin Cooper, Judge um, Huff in San Diego, she put a, a family picture of the Ryans and a picture of Chris Hughes at the end of her opinion denying Cooper's habeas claims. Right. Which I found very effective. True. I mean, so I think that would have been. I'm seeing it both ways. I'll put it that way. Yeah. So, anyway, well. Talk the hell out of you and people that want to, you know, 
do something a little bit. Do something a little bit more. Well, you know, seeing seeing the result is one thing, but seeing like I'm looking at this group that I'm on on Facebook, looking at the pictures of Stacy Stites that people are now sharing, mm-hmm. seeing her in life is even more poignant. True. You know, because you can see, you kind of get a sense of what could have been, what might have been. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. I would agree with that statement. I would definitely. Well, why don't statement. we? Why don't we take our break and then we'll move into the pre-trial and trial. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to uh, Claire and Convincing. We'll be right back after this. This Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available. And this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. Call. 
All right, and we're back. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We are back. And, you know, I, I've been thinking about that, what you were saying before we went to break. I mean, yes, it is. It's very depressing that that is what people remember about this crime. But one thing I will yeah. say, you know, based upon the end results towards the end, and obviously I've already warned you we're going to get into a little bit of debate coming into the last few subjects of this uh, of this, but uh, you know, I kind of understand how he became what he became. You know what I'm saying? Kind of like this cult-like hero because, you know, he supposedly turned his life around and was doing right things like that, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so uh, pre-trial the um one of the tactics that his attorneys used was to question Williams's competency. Uh apparently some of his visitors thought that he just wasn't himself. So there was a psychological evaluation and it found that, you know, he was competent to stand trial. He was competent to assist in his own defense. He actually changed attorneys during that pretrial phase. And I'm not positive, but it looks like he may have even gone from being represented by public defenders to retain counsel. Or he was allowed to pick state paid attorneys of his own choosing rather than having them chosen for him by the court. Which is a little okay. unusual. Um, right. So he was allowed to change attorneys uh, just prior to trial. In the trial, the prosecution had, in addition to Alfred Coward, who had been granted immunity, um, he didn't have a weapon, he didn't fire a weapon, he didn't participate in the murder of Albert Owens. He participated in the robbery. Um, he testified against Stanley Williams and was essentially an eyewitness to the murder of Albert Owens, as well as uh, some of Williams's statements afterwards. Mm-hmm. Including, you know, why'd you kill him so there wouldn't be any witnesses? Um they also had the uh, uh, married couple by the name of Garrett. Uh, Williams had been staying with them prior to the armed robberies on the 27th of February. He had actually gone to their home because he kept some of his belongings there even when he wasn't staying there. And one of the belongings he kept there was his shotgun. Mm-hmm. And he went to pick that up. Um, there was also, while he was in jail awaiting trial, a, um, he apparently sought advice on an escape plan from a fellow inmate. Mm-hmm. And the fellow inmate went to the sheriffs and reported this and then acted as an informant for the sheriff's office. So over the course of that, um, plans in Tukey Williams' handwriting 
were produced to the sheriffs to add to the prosecution's file and the prosecution's evidence against Williams because just as flight to avoid criminal charges is uh, consistent with guilt, so so is planning escape to avoid trial. Um, And the plans were really, um, they discussed whether they could get out of the jail. That was found to be too secure. Then they found, they, you know, basically figured out that the most vulnerable point is transport to and from court. So Williams came up with a plan, enlisted a girlfriend, enlisted the informant's wife to get weapons and meet the bus when they got to the courthouse. Help them escape, kill Alfred Coward, who is apparently is still incarcerated pending a deal uh, to testify, and then blow up the bus so that the authorities would have a hard time figuring out who escaped. That was Tukey's master plan. Damn, that sounds like a hell of a master plan. Mhm. Yeah. And That's you know, unfortunately, in actual real life. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, fortunately for the citizens of Los Angeles, the informant was an informant. He was not, you know, a an accomplice, and so the plan never came to fruition. And again, plenty of letters in Williams's handwriting uh, became part of the evidence, the state's evidence against him at trial. Uh, basically, Williams's defense was he wasn't there, he didn't do it, everybody's lying, and he produced several witnesses to give him alibis both for the night of the 27th of February as well as the night of March 11th. Um, the jury deliberated at the close of the state's case and the defense case, and they found Williams guilty of four counts of first-degree murder. After the guilty verdict, Williams apparently made a statement that he was going to get every one of those MFers. Really? Meaning the jury. Um, the punishment phase. <laughs> yeah. The punishment phase went forward. Um, Williams didn't want to put on any evidence. The prosecution didn't put on any additional evidence. And so the jury deliberated and um, the threat to the jurors was apparently brought to the judge's attention and I think Williams' attorneys were trying to get a mistrial but they questioned the jury foreman and they had the jury had already reached a verdict on punishment 
and the judge questioned the jury foreman and found that the threat, you know, one or two jurors had seen it. Nobody mentioned it to any of the other jurors. It had no effect on their deliberations or their their sentencing, and so Williams was sentenced to death. Right, right. And then the direct appeal and first state habeas cases were consolidated. Um, the issues on direct appeal were, uh, you know, not really. I think the the threat to the jurors was one of them, but basically the courts held that a, a defendant cannot, uh, basically invite error by doing something prejudicial to himself and then expect the court to reward that behavior by granting a mistrial and starting the process all over again. Right, right, okay. So um, so he he was not rewarded for that. Uh, and the 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 court also found that the um that you know the juror is jurors are presumed to be telling the truth when they're questioned by the court. Absent right. some evidence that they're not. You know, absent right. a juror coming forward and saying when the the foreman was questioned about this, you know, he, he was he he was lying because I told the whole jury about what I saw. <clears throat> Um, and sometimes it, it's kind of weird with juror, juror issues because generally you can't – they won't take testimony from jurors about things that occurred in the courtroom or in the, in the jury room. They only will talk to them about things that happen outside of court. If something from outside came into the jury and affected their, their verdict. Um, so it's really, you know, it's kind of a slippery slope, right? Because you can't let juror, you can't let jurors five years later say, "I regret my decision. I wish I hadn't sentenced him," and say, "Oh, okay, we're going to give him a new trial." Mm-hmm. So that's why you know juries can't um, can't. Disavow their verdict and and affect the post conviction stance of the case. Um, He raised another issue regarding the informant because apparently um, he argued that the informant was a state agent, a state agent, and he had invoked under both. Well, a Miranda and under his Sixth Amendment right to counsel, and so the informant should have never been talking to him at all. Right. And the court found that uh, initially, before the the informant went to the sheriff, he was not a state agent. And most of the the most damaging information from the informant came prior to his actually reporting any of it to the sheriff or working with the sheriff 
together. Of it. So, um, and then he also uh, basically objected to the plan of escape being used because he didn't actually escape. He just planned it. Um, so his initial, his direct appeal and initial state habeas claims were denied. Um, he, his uh, conviction and sentence were both affirmed and his, um, first habeas was denied. Mm-hmm. And then there's a second state habeas claim that was not reported. And so I don't know what the exact issues were. California is difficult because they really don't report a lot of cases. Hmm. It's very disappointing <laughs> sometimes. Right. And especially when you're going back like with Kevin Cooper and uh, you know Stanley Williams, where the cases go back to the 1980s, um, you get what you get, and that's it. So um, then, basically, the second state habeas and the third state habeas, Williams was raising additional new evidence to challenge the jailhouse informants uh, issue. And he apparently had some informants in his third state habeas who all said that the informant was working with the sheriff's department on a regular basis, was a paid informant for the sheriff's department, and was involved in a scheme by the sheriff's department to obtain evidence to make the prosecution Los Angeles County cases stronger than they initially were. And one of the main proponents of that story was a guy by the name of Leslie White, who was also a an informant and had been working with the district attorney and the sheriff's office on multiple cases. Just prior to the hearing on the third state habeas writ, filed by Williams, two of his witnesses were arrested for perjury in other cases. Some would say, well, look at that. They're interfering with the witnesses. But you've got witnesses who who have said in sworn affidavits, in Williams' case and probably others, oh, yeah, I was paid to lie or I lied at trial when I testified in this case, in that case, in the other case. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think the prosecution is going to do? They're going to charge you with perjury. And Leslie White hadn't testified in Williams's case. Leslie White was providing information about the original informant, a guy by the name of Oglesby. Um, so the evidentiary hearing comes, and all of Williams's witnesses refuse to testify mm-hmm. because the ones who hadn't been charged with perjury yet don't want to be charged with perjury. 
and the ones who had already been charged don't want to make their situations any worse. Um, one of the issues I think that he also raised was that the prosecutor should have given all of them immunity so that they would testify. Um, and then there was an interesting thing. Apparently, Leslie White had an about face and at one point threatened to expose the defense for um, kind of coercing helpful statements from him. Huh. Okay. So it 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 kind of uh it it seemed promising but apparently blew up in his attorney's spaces. Right. So um that habeas decision was in 1994. Uh of course relief was denied because most of the information um that these informants were providing, even though they wouldn't testify, had been before the jury through Oglesby's cross-examination. Right. And the jury had gotten to see Oglesby uh, deny the allegations that he was a paid informant, that he was a regular informant, that he had set other people up, that he was setting Tukey Williams up. Et cetera, et cetera. So, and unfortunately, right before the evidentiary hearing, George Oglesby died of a heart attack. Hmm. So okay. he wasn't available to testify at that point. Uh, Williams moved on to federal court. He was granted limited discovery and a hearing. On limited issues. Uh, of course, he wasn't happy with that and complained. His habeas, uh, his excuse me, habeas claim was denied at the federal court, district court level, and the Ninth Circuit affirmed that in 2002. And one of the things the Ninth Circuit said was that. Um, you know, Tukey's writing and Tukey's redemption in prison were a made him a candidate for clemency, but that legally, judicially, it didn't undo the four lives that he took. Oh. And the evidence of his guilt was overwhelming because it was cumulative. There were not there was an accomplice witness, but there were non accomplice witnesses to Williams talking about shooting Owens and laughing about the noises he made, imitating and then laughing, calling the Yangs Buddha heads, admitting that he was the one who killed them and robbed the motel. There was the gun. And then Tony Sims, one of the accomplices in the 7-Eleven robbery, I don't believe he testified against Williams, but in his own trial and his own parole hearings, his sworn testimony implicated Williams. Mm -hmm. So 
there was no basis for doubt about Tukey Williams' guilt in the 7-Eleven robbery or the, the Brookhaven Motel robbery. Hmm. True. And the True. U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear the case in 2004, which led to uh, pave the way rather for Williams's execution date to be set for December 13th, 2005. Right. And uh, in his clemency request, basically, you know, Williams claimed that he was trying to end gang violence, that he was, um, that he was, uh, you know, working with the Crips and the Bloods to try and heal the wounds between them. Uh, he was writing the books to keep kids from joining gangs. He was writing the societal books to, um, you know, kind of say, show how he got there. And, you know, one thing I want to say, Tukey um, Williams was, even though he didn't, apply himself in school for whatever reasons he was apparently very intelligent right and very well spoken um and so that he chose street life at all in 1971 that was his choice he could have done something he could have gotten his shit together, gotten a GED, and done something with his life. True, true. And just like a, just like an Italian kid who chooses the mafia, an Irish kid in New York who chooses the Westies, a, you know, a white kid in Alabama or. Missouri or Kentucky or Tennessee or West Virginia who chooses Aryan Brotherhood or Illinois or Indiana, you know, you choose, that's a choice. You're not forced to do it. You decide, I want the easy way. I don't want to work. I want to take. Right. You're right about that. And that's that is what Tuki did. He chose now, the street this, life. Is this where we can start the debate or should we wait? Yeah. No, we can start okay. debating now. Okay, let's start the debate. So now that we're talking about the clemency part, here's my thing, Lisa. Okay, so we know he didn't commit the crime, but the whole point of jail and this whole process is rehabilitation. Do you not believe that Tukey was rehabilitated? No, I do not. First of all, um, I'm looking for I'm looking for something. There's a listing of who he dedicated his books to. Mm-hmm. Ah, here it is. Okay, the okay. dedication 
Oh, and this is from Governor Schwarzenegger's decision denying clemency. Okay. The dedication of William's book, Life in Prison, casts significant doubt on his personal redemption. This book was published in 1998, several years after Williams claimed his redemptive experience. Specifically, the book is dedicated to Nelson Mandela, Angela Davis, Malcolm X, Asada Shakur, Geronimo Jujaga Pratt, Ramona Africa, John Africa, Leonard Peltier, Daruba Al-Mujahideed, I'm sorry I've mispronounced that name, George Jackson, Mumia Abu-Jamal, and countless other men, women, and youth who have to endure the hellish oppression of living behind bars. Well, with the mix of individuals said, on this list – wait, wait, let me finish. The mix of individuals on this list is curious. Most have violent pasts, and some have been convicted of committing heinous murders, including the killing of law enforcement. So my thing here is this, right? My thing here with this is, number one, a couple of those may be his friends from back when he was in the game. Doesn't necessarily mean he's still no. supporting his lifestyle. No. But a couple of those were, like, I believe you said, uh, uh, what's his name from uh, Af- Nelson Mandela? South Africa. Nelson Mandela. However, no, but wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Um, You know, what Nelson Mandela and Winnie Mandela did, ending apartheid, yes, they they accomplished that. But in their early days, it was not peaceful. And there was also a struggle for power. And it was not, you know, it, it was not peaceful summits. It was elimination of rivals. Hmm. Uh, see, this is tough for me. Okay. Like, you're breaking down and, Mandela more you than know, I, I, I Well, no, I mean, I don't, and I don't, yes, what they did later in life and the way they were able to, to, peacefully end apartheid Mm -hmm. but there was also a period of time where and this happened in a lot of African countries there was a period of time where there was kind of a backlash of violence against colonial Caucasian inhabitants who Mm -hmm. by that time had lived, you know, their families had been in South Africa for generations as well. Right. Um, but there was, it was not all always peaceful, nonviolent. There were years and stages where it was, there was violence and there was elimination of rivals and there was infighting among the groups trying to end apartheid. And then there was, like I said, a period afterwards where 
where South Africans who were not colored, which is refers to Indian and Asians who came to Africa as part of the railway system, building systems, army, etc. Um, and African native populations against the white population. So, Lisa, I guess what I'm saying is unless the point that Schwarzenegger is trying to make here is that secretly there was a hidden message in the book saying, oh, yeah, go ahead and join the gang lifestyle, maybe it was a message that, hey, well, you know, you guys may still be in this. Again, but, you know, you know, it, you know, Ramona and he didn't know he didn't know Ramona, Africa, John, Africa and Mumia Bojamal because they're from Philadelphia. Right, right. Um, you know, Malcolm X was not necessarily peaceful, nonviolent, like Martin Luther King. True. <clears throat> Leonard Peltier is in prison for murder of FBI agents. And all of these people with the exception of maybe Nelson Mandela, I'm not quite sure about Nelson Mandela. I don't know whether he really was a political prisoner or whether, you know, he was really guilty of some crime. All mm-hmm. these people claim to be political prisoners convicted by an unfair system. But we know, like, Mumia Jamal has had so many bites at the post-conviction apple and has gotten yet another bite. Thanks to the, you know, federal court. Right. <laughs> so, um, it, it's just, yeah, these are, these are not, you know, it's not Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Jesse Jackson who, you know, social justice does not equal violence. Um, it's it's individuals, some of whom have espoused violence against police, mm-hmm. violence against other races. Um, and, you know, when you said earlier prisons about redemption, I mean re- rehabilitation, sometimes it is, but sometimes it's also about punishment. Right, but isn't it – isn't the ultimate goal of uh, prison to rehabilitate you, to bring you back – well, not in his case, but to eventually bring you back into society? <clears throat> so I guess in his case, it would be more about redeeming yourself, well, owning up to your crime, things like that. Again, they're not called rehabilitation centers. They're called penal institutions. And penal institution, let's see, penal, the definition used for or prescribing the punishment of offenders under the legal system. Disciplinary, punitive, corrective, correctional. Mm-hmm. No rehabilitation. And there are some crimes rehabilitation absolutely positively does not work, and we know this. 
right. sex offenders and pedophiles. It doesn't work. And often the experience of being imprisoned once leads to an escalation where the future victims die. True. So, um, and there are, you know, I mean, there are legitimate questions as to whether Williams had actually reformed. He would not speak to gang gang officials at the prison to tell them about the structure of the Crips, how they did their business, how they shipped their products, what they did, where they took the money, what they, you know. And those are all things, if you're really against gangs and you really want to end a gang, that's one of the ways to do it is to give authorities the information they need to effectively round up gang members and imprison them. I've been thinking them. about that since you first said it at the start of the program, though. Think about Tukey, though. He's the guy who's been in the streets for, you know, his whole life. And, you know, there is a code in the streets, you know, that niches yeah. just did and so, I mean, part of but it, again, part of it is but, but Michael he still has to protect himself. Michael, place. again, but he's also sending the message to kids: live by the street code. Hmm. So that's kind of a, that's kind of opposite of the message he's supposedly trying to send: is to you know, don't join gangs, stay in school. And then the the final thing, um, and this is from, uh, again, from, from the statement of decision from Governor Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. There's also little mention or atonement in his writings and his plea for clemency of the countless murders committed by the Crips following the lifestyle Williams once espoused. The senseless killing that has ruined many families, particularly in African-American communities, in the name of the Crips and gang warfare is a tragedy of our modern culture. One would expect more explicit and direct reference to this byproduct of his former lifestyle in Williams' writings and apology for this tragedy, but exists only through innuendo and inference. Mm -hmm. Is Williams... Redemption complete and sincere, or is it just a hollow promise? Stanley Williams insists he is innocent and that he will not and should not apologize or otherwise atone for the murders of the four victims in this case. Without apology and atonement for these senseless and brutal killings, there can be no redemption. In this case, the one thing that would be the clearest indication of complete remorse and full redemption is the one thing Williams will not do. And I agree. Yeah. He doesn't apologize. He says, why should I apologize? I didn't do this. I'm innocent. It's an unfair system. All the evidence against me was manufactured. All the witnesses had criminal records. He even tried at the last minute to raise a Brady violation because of Alfred Coward's criminal record. Mm-hmm. 
Coward was his partner. He would have been well aware of Coward's criminal record. Hmm. Uh, and one of the one of the other comments uh, regarded George Jackson, who was one of the people the book was delica- dedicated to. Uh-huh. Life in prison. George Jackson was a militant activist and prison inmate who founded the violent Black Guerrilla Family Prison Gang. Jackson was charged with the murder of a San Quentin correctional officer. In 1970, when Jackson was out to court in Marin County on the murder case, his brother stormed the courtroom with a machine gun and along with Jackson and two other inmates took a judge, the prosecutor, and three others hostages in an escape attempt. Shooting broke out. The prosecutor was paralyzed by a police bullet. The judge was killed by a close-range blast to his head when the shotgun taped to his throat was fired by one of Jackson's accomplices. Jackson's brother was also killed. Three days before trial was to begin in the correctional officer murder case, Jackson was gunned down in the upper yard at St. Quentin Prison in another foiled escape attempt on a day of unparalleled violence in the prison that left three officers and three inmates dead in an earlier riot that appears that reports indicate also involved Jackson. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it sounds like Stanley Williams, that sounds a little bit like um, his plan of escape. Right. So, but again, I mean, you know, I think the the bottom line, redemption, to be redeemed, you have to admit that you did something wrong, and you have to say, I'm sorry, and apologize, and Williams would not do that. He claimed all the evidence was fabricated, all the witnesses were lying, the system was unfair, that he wasn't being tried for murder. He was tried for being a founder of the Crips. Um, and his and his advocates spread that message in the media leading up to his execution. When he were, he never apologized to the Owens family, to the Yang family. I thought he had. And, I mean, these were brutal murders, Michael. I mean, these were close range with a shotgun. Right. You know, that was what what was so disheartening with the Yangs is that I could – those were the only pictures I could find. Mr. Yang with, you know, a, a breathing tube in his mouth. And the daughter um, was shot in the face or in the head with a shotgun at close range. Right. And these were three people, a 76-year-old man, a 63-year-old woman, and a 43-year-old woman, all of small stature. All of little or no resistance. Mm-hmm. 
Mrs. Yang was on her knees on the floor. Albert Owens was on the floor, shot in the back. Twice. It's not redemption if you don't admit that that's what you did and apologize for doing it and portray yourself as a victim of the system instead. That's not redemption. Hmm. And then, you know, did gang violence end? Did gang violence end in Los Angeles? No. Well, I mean, you can't exactly put. You can't exactly put. <laughs> There's barely. There was barely a blip on the radar for that. Hmm. But what I'm saying is, you can you can't put ending all gang violence on Tukey. Well, but yeah, but but Tukey's advocates claim that he was making great strides in this endeavor already. By 2005. When you look at the statistics, not really. I mean, there may have been one or two people who found his website and made better choices. But overall, I mean, you know, I think one of the prosecutors or one of the gang people said most of the Crips out on the street at that time by 2005 had never heard of him. Until his name was in the media. Right. So, um, you know, like I said, I I just don't think... I, I don't think he deserved clemency. <clears throat> because he really was not changing. And who's to say if he had managed to get clemency but ended up with life in prison that he wouldn't have reverted right back to where he was when he came in. And the first several years, he was very dangerous in prison, even on death row, attacking other prisoners, attacking correctional corrections officers. Spent a lot of time in the hole. So who's to say if he if he'd been allowed to live, he wouldn't have gone back. And he remained, you know, he remained very um, cut and built. So very imposing and very strong. So I mean. You know, how can you think redemption comes without admitting what's wrong, what you did was wrong, and that you did it? We had this talk about Kenneth Foster, who wants people to believe I was just driving the car. I had no idea that these guys were going to rob people. Yeah. Well, are you are you quiet because you agree? I'm quiet because 
I don't know. Like, part of me is still like, man, you can't. I feel like it's wrong to assume things. And to assume that he wouldn't have continued his work and, you know, maybe eventually he would have made a positive impact. I mean, hell, nowadays they bring these kids that are gang freaking affiliated or whatever to jails. Tukey would have been perfect. This big ass motherfucker coming up to a dude and being like, hey, motherfucker, you know, this is where you're going to end up, you know? Tukey would have been perfect in these, you know, uh, shows where the kids go into the jail and I, I forget what they're scared straight. Yeah. That would have been perfect. I mean, you talk about how big but, Tukey was. Good Lord. Them little kids would have pissed themselves. Well, but. You know, again, I'm not assuming he would have reverted back. I'm just saying there is always a possibility. Because, again, the, the, the dedication of his book suggests that he's not really looking toward higher um, sources. Right. That he's got the same mindset when he dedicates a book to at least some individuals who have been found guilty and in prison for the murder of police officers. Or a man who engineered a hostage situation, killed a prison guard, and started a riot that killed three guards and three inmates. You're right. You're right. But I mean, you know. I just, so in a lot of these cases, I agree. Yes, there's no other recourse but to go ahead and <clears throat> put them down. You know, there's nothing to, there's nothing to redeem. But in this case, I have a hard time saying that. I don't feel like death was the only option they had in this case. Well, but again, you have to look at Williams. You live by you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Williams put Albert Owens on the ground in the back room. Albert Owens offered no resistance, no argument. And Tukey Williams shot Albert Owens twice in the back. And then said he did it to not eliminate witnesses. And when he recounted shooting Albert Owens, saying you should have heard the way he sounded when I shot him, Williams then made a growling noise and laughed for five to six minutes. But all of those statements were before this redemption and before he, you know, supposedly learned his lesson. I mean, I'm not saying that he wasn't a complete piece of shit beforehand, but... But again, he didn't... Michael, he didn't learn a lesson because he always claimed that he was innocent. He always claimed that he was innocent, that he was convicted in an unfair trial, 
He filed five state habeas petitions. Even up to the last minute prior to his execution. And never once did he say, I'm sorry, to Albert Owens, Yenny Yang, uh, Sai, and I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I know I'm pronouncing these wor- these names incorrectly. Sai Shei Yang, Yi Chen Lin. I'm sorry, and I'm sorry to the Owens family. I'm sorry to the Yang family. So then I got a for uh, for two hundred and twenty dollars. I got to counterpoint this also with the point that by killing Tukey, now you've made a mythical figure of Tukey. And Tukey isn't around to tell these young crypts and, you know, everybody that is now coming up in the gang that, you know, I've watched Gang Glam. They said they're more violent now than they were, you know, back in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Yeah, but that's been... Ain't the way to go, you know? That's... But again, that's been... And again, there are other gang members in prison. There are celebrities who are former gang members, like like Snoop Dogg. You don't need somebody doing that from prison in San Quentin. I mean, really, how effective can Tukey Williams be in San Quentin prison? or Corcoran, or Pelican Bay, if his sentence had been commuted. How, if he'd served a life sentence without the possibility of parole, how effective do you think he really could have been in prison? I mean, I don't know the answer to that. Like I said, though, I mean, we have these shows like the Scared Straight program and stuff. Now, put them little mofos in a room with Tukey, and I'm sure they won't want to come back. You know what I'm saying? But again, they've got other prisoners that do that that haven't killed people. And you got to remember, he's killed people. You're right. You want to you want to be very careful who you put with Tukey Williams, especially if he's been able to con his way off a of death row. By writing True. some books and saying gangs are bad, don't do it, and putting up a website and getting a bunch of celebrities telling the mythical story. And luckily, journalists like um, – oh, what was her name? I can't remember her name. She's with, she, she wrote a bunch of articles with uh, San Francisco, Deborah Saunders, mm-hmm. San Francisco. Uh, and she wrote a bunch of articles – Busting the myths of tu- of Tukey, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, he's killed people. He killed four people, and he never admitted to doing it. He never apologized to them or their families. He kept the fiction of innocence up in spite of all of the evidence against him. Let me let me let me summarize what we have. We have eyewitness testimony of Alfred Coward, one of his accomplices in the seven eleven shooting. Ballistics evidence proving the shotgun casing 
found at the scene of the motel murders was fired from Williams' shotgun. Testimony from Samuel Coleman that Williams confessed that he'd robbed and killed some people on Vermont Street where the motel was located. Testimony from James and Esther Garrett that Williams admitted to them that he committed both sets of murders. These were friends of his. He stayed at their house. Testimony from jailhouse informant George Oglesby that Williams confessed to the motel murders and conspired to escape from county jail. The trial evidence is bolstered by information from Tony Sims, who's admitted to being an accomplice in the 7-Eleven murder. Sims did not testify against Williams at trial, but was later convicted of murder for his role in Albert Owens' death. During his trial and subsequent parole hearings, Sims has repeatedly stated under oath that Williams was the shooter. And yet, in spite of all this, this was all that was all lies. Tukey Williams claimed I wasn't at the Seven Eleven. Tukey Williams claimed I wasn't at the I was never at the Brookhaven Motel. So then, Lisa, I ask you, with Tukey, would it have not been punishment enough for him to be there locked up still for the rest of his life? Well, this is what – okay, this is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Had he said, had his clemency petition said, on February 27, 1979, I was high on PCP, I wanted to make some money, I watched my accomplices unsuccessfully try to ride one or two other establishments, I decided to drive the bus, we went to the 7-Eleven, I marched Albert Owens into the store, the back room. I put him on the ground. I shot out the monitor, and then I shot him twice in the back, and I am sorry. And to Albert Owens' family, I am sorry. Less than two weeks later, I went to the Brookhaven Motel. I busted down the door between the lobby and the office. I found Yen E. Yang laying on a couch. I shot him in the torso and in the arm. I saw Sai Shay Lin. I put her on the ground. I shot her once in the abdomen and once in the back. Then the daughter, Yi Chen Lin, came out, and I shot her in the face. Then I took $100 in cash and left, and I am sorry to the Yang family. I'm sorry to the father and mother that I took away from their son. I'm sorry for the to the grandparents I took away from their grandchildren. I'm sorry for the mother that I took away from her children and husband. And I'm sorry to the Yang family as a whole. If he'd said those things in his clemency petition, in addition to talking about all the things he had done, and all these accomplishments of Nobel Prize, Nobel nominations, et cetera, et cetera, Governor Schwarzenegger might have commuted his sentence to life without the possibility of parole. If that existed in California in 1979. 
And if that had happened, we would probably be here talking about how, oh, he's been in prison since 1981. He should be let out. Well, and trust me, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. I'm not I'm not <laughs> advocating for the guy to have been released. Yes, he needed to spend the life, his the rest of his life behind bars, but I'm just but saying again, you know, you as always, have potentially been an my, advocate for But no, Michael, uh, that's the thing. He wasn't really that much of an advocate. He wasn't an effective advocate. Well, I mean, good Lord. How many because he was on death row at San Quentin. Again, I, I, they're not going to take scared straight. They're not going to bust ki- Michael. They're not going to bust kids up to San Quentin death row and put them in a recreation room with Tukey Williams or anybody else on death row. That is never going to happen. Well, I agree. Okay, I understand your point with that. My point is, (laughs) if you're saying he wasn't an effective advocate, good Lord, nobody's been an effective advocate against gun violence then. Nope. But but that's because that's what the nature, you know, Tukey's life was based on Tukey's choices. These kids, they make the choices. And, you know, believe it or not, there are people out in the world in Los Angeles who do everything that they can to try and keep these kids from joining the gangs. And they do it for the kids. They don't do it for themselves. And what I think personally is that Tukey did all this for himself because he knew one day he was going to get a date. And when that date came, he wanted to have something to show. Right. To benefit himself. Because I think Tukey was about Tukey. Let me read this here. I just got a message. Uh, Brad's listening on the line, and he just said something about a gentleman, and I'm looking at his Wikipedia page right now by the name of uh, Larry Hoover. And he said, uh, "What did? why did Tukey have to die if Hoover's still alive? And, I mean, that's a good point, because looking at his crimes, I mean, good Lord. Uh, he was the founder of a Chicago, Illinois street gang called the Gangster Disciples. He's serving six life sentences in Florence, Colorado. Okay. Uh, I mean... Well... Minus one being federal, it looks like. And again, it's being. not. But again, my it's not. He may have been convicted when there was no federal death penalty. 
So, of course, he's not going to get the death penalty on a federal case in a federal court when there is no federal death penalty. Tukey was convicted was no of, of first-degree murder with special circumstances in California where there was a death penalty. So, I mean, it looks like from what I'm reading. I mean, here, this is where this is what annoys me about mm-hmm. some of the public in general. You cannot find two names and say, well, this one is worse than that one. Why isn't this one getting the same punishment that that one got? Unless they're both in San Quentin. But even then, in a in a death penalty case, there is a punishment phase, and the jury has discretion to sentence to life, life without the possibility of parole, or death. True. And if if a person a, a defendant is able to put on a case that mitigates the aggravating factors involved in their crime, then a jury is going to have mercy. So, Lisa, I have to ask then, would it be unprecedented for somebody like Governor Schwarzenegger to look at a case like like Hoover, who was convicted in 97, and say, okay, well, I mean, this is what he got. Maybe we over-sentenced him? No, again, because you're dealing with sentencing in federal court mm-hmm. where there was no death penalty in a case that was tried in college. What, where was it tried? He was in Illinois. Uh, Illinois, yeah, Chicago. <clears throat> okay. Uh, I'm looking to see where the case was tried. It looks like uh, if you look under conviction, uh, uh, he was arrested at the Dixon County or Dixon Correctional Center by federal agents and moved to the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Chicago to stand trial. So it looks like he's housed in Florence, Colorado, but he was uh, he stood trial in Chicago. Okay. He was indicted for drug conspiracy, extortion, and continuing to engage in a criminal enterprise. So right. there was no murder <laughs> indictment on the no 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 wait 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 it lists murder and he may have committed a murder but he was never tried and convicted of a murder and in this particular instance he was not charged with murder and he was not convicted of murder so he's not going to be sentenced for murder. He had conviction for murder in Illinois. Um, Let's see. He was charged and sentenced to 150 to 200 years in prison, sent to state bill in Crest Hill, Illinois, to serve out his term. Uh, 
he claimed to have renounced his violent criminal past and become, a, become an urban political celebrity in Chicago. Uh, I mean, I see the comparison. He got another life sentence in 1995. So he claimed to be reformed, but he wasn't. Because apparently, two years after his uh, claimed renunciation of his violent criminal past, federal investigation using wiretaps led to another life sentence. I mean, I want to look at, I want to look at his appeals and things to see what he was charged with, what he's serving time for now. But Mm -hmm. it it looks like in this particular case, he wasn't charged with murder. So he wasn't eligible for the death penalty. It looks like it came from a case in 1973, but a Wikipedia article really isn't the best source for information because sometimes negative information is sterilized from the – yeah, you or I could get in there and write something. I mean, I agree with that. Wikipedia isn't the greatest source of information, but apparently Kanye went and pleaded with Trump for his clemency at some point, too. Okay. <laughs> he was sentenced to life. He's uh-huh. at um, Florence 80 Max. Right. It and, doesn't and, list uh, what the charges were, though. Uh, it doesn't list what the charges were. I mean, but I'm obviously I see your point about not being able to draw comparisons as far as the uh, the uh, actual suits or the actual criminal cases because you know they're two different okay. sets of laws. Wait, 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 Can't, wait, 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 wait. Okay. According to DEA, he was serving a 200-year sentence for a 1973 gang-related murder, Um, and there was an undercover investigation dealing with the drug conspiracy, extortion, and other criminal charges, which I guess perhaps Larry was running from prison with the gangster disciples. So – that led to the federal charges, which put him in Florence for life. Now, Lisa, and I'm waiting for a source, but uh, I do see here where uh, Brad found something uh, where a news article said that his book, uh, Protocol for Peace, actually served as the basis for a truce between two gangs in New Jersey. So, I mean, that's an impact. For two gangs in New Jersey. And how long did that truce last? I I mean, do you... It's an impact, though. I mean, even if it lasted a day or a month or, you know, it still lasts to this day. It's still an impact. Again, I don't believe that this was done 
for any reason other than it would benefit him down the line. And again, I don't think leave I don't think commuting his sentence and giving him a life sentence, if one even existed, would have changed gang violence, gun violence in this country because it's about choices. His life is about choices. His crime was about choices. His conviction was about choices. If he had sat in prison or sat in lockup and waited for his trial and kept his freaking head on straight, they would have had less evidence because they would have had all that escape and blowing up buses shit. Um, you know, it was about choices. And being in a gang is about choices. And, you know, I know people who have been told it's not the right road. You don't want to go down that road. And they do it anyway. Because a lot of human beings have this one flaw. We all think we know better than anybody advising us otherwise. And so, like I said, I I, I just, I think that everything was done. There was an, an element of calculation. If something good came of it, that's okay. But two gangs in New Jersey... And that's all in how many years? You know, I would expect a result to be, you know, I would expect a a result to be, you know, like the Latin kings and the gangster disciples disbanding. Or the Crips and the Bloods disbanding. Or sets of the Crips and Bloods disbanding. What's the ball And those individuals I mean, going out, and that's another thing. You don't have anybody that says, I'm doing this because of Tukey Williams. Apparently, these two gangs in New Jersey said that. And I'll send you the again, story, by the way. Again, two, like I said, two gangs, two gangs in New Jersey win. The protocol of peace should have been like in every state in the union. He had a website and he had some, you know, I just, I think his, his uh, impact was exaggerated. He was lionized in an effort to make him seem to have been more effective than he actually was. I mean, and I'm going to take this out okay. a, a little bit out of Medium. context from what he – at least, uh, I mean, this is a good point, though, uh, it, it, that Brad makes. He says the lure of the lifestyle is very hard to compromise, which is true for young men. And steps are steps. I mean, we do know racism was wrong, but it still happens with steps being taken but not widely accepted. And in this case, I'm going to bring up Martin Luther King. So does this mean that Martin Luther King Jr. failed in – Making an impact because we still have racist people alive today. 
that Martin Luther King's his aim was equality for everybody, which we do have. It may still not be easy, but it's a hell of a lot better than it was in the 1960s. I mean, you're too young to remember the scandal of Star Trek. Right. In the late 1960s with a black woman who was in a leadership role and who was actually kissed on television by a white man. Um, I just, I don't understand what the bar is being set as far as he didn't make an impact. What is the is the bar total elimination of gang lifestyle? Because that's impossible, in my opinion. I just hesitate to think. Well, that first of all, okay. Completely. Medium dot com. Medium. Wait, wait. Uh, first of all, medium dot com is not an objective journalistic source. This is actually like an op-ed piece. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's... I mean, but um, my point is, even if Tukey's message moved one person away from the gang lifestyle... Is that not an impact? And a good impact at that. Yeah, but I don't know that, like I said, did it really? We would have to go to South Central and ask the I mean, of the blood. You know what I'm saying? Well, I, no, and this wasn't even, this was, this was some summit from the Crips and the Bloods. Uh, according to this article or, or op-ed piece with the mm-hmm. facts as um, protocol, there was apparently in 19 um, – what was it? Where did it say this? Oh, I hate this. This is one of those articles, too, that's like a clickbait because it keeps going back to the top. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, he did a five-and-a-half-minute video message for a summit between the Crips and Bloods, um, according to the New York Times article published in 2000, and brought the audience of 400 to its feet. He also started the Internet Project for Street Peace, which arranged for at-risk youth in California and South Africa to communicate with each other via email and online chat groups. Um, and then this the, the he did so. He did so in jail. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Well, no, he had help from Barbara Becknell on the outside. Well, true, but I mean, the fact okay. that he got in jail so, decided to change this type of stuff. I'm sure that kind of put him at risk but, too. Again, Michael, okay. let's go back. Look at who he did it. Look at who he dedicates his book to. Mm-hmm. 
did he really is that really is that really reform? I mean, like I said, I think it was calculated, mm-hmm. and it was to you know to appear like he had changed, but just like when he imitated Albert Owens and then laughed for five or six minutes, he can't really change. So he dedicates one of his books to some pretty, a few who are incredibly violent and a couple who have been involved in the murder of law enforcement officers. I mean, true. Uh, Again, the one thing, this, none of this, uh, Michael, let me just, let me just, let me just close it out with this, this, and this is my opinion. None of that means anything. It means absolutely nothing because he would not admit that he murdered Albert Owens, Yenny Yang, Saisha Yang, and Yi Chen Lin. It's meaningless. He claimed to be a victim. He claimed that he was innocent. He claimed that all the witnesses lied. He claimed that all the evidence was fabricated. He claimed that he was a victim of discrimination by the jury, by the courts, by the prosecutor. probably by anybody in the media who didn't sing Tukey's praises. So none of that means anything. When a brutal murderer portrays himself as the victim and doesn't even say the victim's names or that he's sorry for what he did. And that's that's I, my opinion. I mean, I understand your opinion, but if the denial was based on the fact that he wasn't rehabilitated, I still struggle to I still struggle to buy that. But again, Michael, redemption redemption doesn't come because you do what you think is going to look good, but you don't admit to the wrong that got you where you are. You don't apologize to the people you hurt, which includes not only the victims themselves who suffered brutal deaths, but their families who have to live with that. I mean, we've got three people that the only thing on the Internet that the Internet knows about them is what they look like after Stanley Williams got done with them. 
You don't pick and choose for redemption. At the core of redemption is admitting what you did, that it was wrong, and apologizing to the people that you hurt. It's like it's just like AA. It's not just about not drinking and staying sober. It's about going to the people that you're drinking hurt and making amends to them for the wrongs that you did while you were drinking. I mean, I see your point. And there's no, you mean, you know, you mean, and you want to see it that way. You want to see him as redeemed. That's fine. But in reality, the only thing that he could have been redeemed, the only way he could have been redeemed was if he had admitted what he'd done and apologized to the people that he hurt. All the other all the other stuff is just wind dressing. I mean, true, but I guess we're about thirty minutes into overtime, so I guess let's, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this thing up before Block Talk kicks us off. How the heck of a yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us on Tuesday, December 10th, 2019 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 41, Estimating Time of Death with special guest Darren Dake. Mr. Dake is a certified instructor and criminal investigator with over 30 years' experience in the field of law enforcement and death investigations. He holds certification as an instructor for the Missouri Department of Public Safety, the Missouri Sheriff's Association, and the Law Enforcement Training Institute, Missouri University, Columbia. He's also the founding director and lead instructor for Death Investigation Training Academy, which is trademarked, and publisher of Death Investigator Magazine, which is also trademarked. A common issue raised in post-conviction litigation is to question the accuracy of the original time of death presented at trial and to present an alternative and exculpatory theory supported by prominent forensic pathologists. In the court of public opinion, those theories are often held out to be infallible because of the prestige of their proponents and are sometimes represented as scientific evidence by advocates and laypeople in media interviews and on social media. We'll talk with Mr. Dake about time of death estimation in general, including the various factors often associated with time of death estimates. Then we'll talk about the basis of the alternative time of death being offered in the Rodney Reed case and the pronouncements by his advocates and experts that the case against him is medically and scientifically impossible. We will also look at the alternative time of death or date of death uh, claims in Larry Swearingen's case. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.